I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On today's episode of GIST Healthcare Daily, we talked to New York Times economics reporter Jim Tankersley about his new book, The Riches of This Land, about how men and women of color are the key to rebuilding the middle class. It's Monday, August 10th, and I'm Alex Olkin with GIST Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines in health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. COVID-19 has exposed so much of the inequality in America. Black and Latino Americans are dying at higher rates than infected white patients and disproportionately working in essential jobs. As New York Times economics reporter Jim Tankersley writes in his new book titled The Riches of This Land, these inequalities are a long time in the making, since the 1970s, when after decades of prosperity across all demographics, American economic policy disadvantaged minority middle-class workers. And Tankersley says the current recession is again hitting minority Americans the hardest. He joined me to talk about that and how we got to this point. Here's some of that conversation. Jim, you've covered politics and economics at papers in Portland, Oregon, Toledo, Ohio, Chicago, and now for the New York Times in Washington, D.C. Why did you decide to write this book now? I like to tell people it's either a book that's sort of three years in the making or my entire lifetime in the making, probably a little bit of both. I grew up in a small town in Oregon, uh, in western Oregon, where the timber industry had been king for a, a lot of the history of the town. But when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, the industry cratered, and I went to high school with a lot of, you know, mostly white kids who were the sons, uh, in particular sons, of mill workers or people who worked in support of the timber industry. And, and their parents had provided a good middle-class life um, just by working hard with their hands in the woods or in these affiliated industries. And suddenly the economy was not going to deliver that for these guys I went to school with anymore. And I, I didn't really think that was fair. These guys worked hard. They deserved a middle-class life. And, and so the book in, in part starts with that question, when's the economy going to work again for those guys I went to high school? And then over the course of my career as a political and economics reporter, and then particularly the last three years as Donald Trump uh, won the White House with both racial appeals and appeals to the white working class, uh, I realized that the story we needed to tell in America that I really wanted to tell was the story not just of the kids I went to high school with, but of all the workers who've been left behind and of their interdependence, of the fact that what the research shows us is um, after World War II, the great boom in the American middle class is largely the result of women and men of color 
breaking down the barriers to opportunity that had held them back. And their progress lifted everyone up, including white men, helped create good jobs. And, um, and so the book is now my labor of trying to get out into the world, this idea that um, workers are in it together, white, non-white, women and men. In the book, you interview several people across the country in different circumstances, but broadly speaking, they're all middle class. And while many were similarly impacted by the 2008 recession, white males were particularly angry and felt targeted, whereas black and Latino Americans you interviewed in the book had a different attitude. What do you think accounts for that difference? It's really, really stark, and um, and it's particularly pronounced in the aftermath of the Great Recession, you know, the, the financial crisis. And I really think it's a um, it's a difference between people who felt like they had climbed the ladder and and achieved this sort of middle class dream. I mean, I, I think that in the in the Midwest, in particular, that dream is like a house on the lake. They had that. They had that house on the lake. They had that good job, and then that was being taken away from them. Versus the people who felt like they had that dream in sight and they'd been knocked back and it was going to take them longer to get there. And it just seems like the reaction um, in from what, everything we see in polling and sentiment, the interviews I did, is really different. And, 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 you know, we know this from other research in other areas that there is a real people have loss aversion. It's you much rather hold on to what you have and have, and have it take away than to lose the potential for something you don't have. And. Um, unfortunately, in America, you know, only certain groups of workers have been able to truly achieve their dreams over the years. And so when those dreams, you know, were taken away, again, through forces, many, many, most of the time that were not those workers' fault, uh, they, they've reacted much more pessimistically than, than the workers who just got, you know, knocked back, dusted themselves off and started pursuing the dream again. One part of the book I found interesting was when you were reflecting on the mainstream media's coverage of the 2016 election, and you say that it was too focused on vocal Trump supporters who happened to often be white males. You wrote in the book, quote, we whitewashed the middle class, and in the process, we legitimized a lie. What do you mean by that? I wrote a lot of stories because we were all trying to figure out how this you know, celebrity had come out of nowhere to take over the Republican Party and, and compete for the presidency. And so we spent a lot of time parsing the polls and talking to his supporters and trying to figure out, you know, where is Donald Trump's support coming from? But in doing that, we, we, we did two things. First off, I think we, we really missed a story about black voters who were also feeling left behind by the economy and, and who were also swing voters. They just were swinging between maybe voting for Hillary Clinton or not voting at all. And that was a very big Shift. I mean, she lost, you know, three industrial Midwestern states by really small margins um, where those non-voters made, you know, part of the difference. And I think the, the other problem, though, and the bigger problem is that we gave white voters this idea that they were suffering in isolation. And, you know, unfortunately, that that sort of feeds the narrative that white workers are uh, at odds with other workers. COVID-19 is killing Black and Latino Americans at higher rates than whites. They're also more likely to work in essential jobs. Now, just last week, the $600 federal jobless benefits ended. Do you see history repeating itself? Is Congress's inability to pass a coronavirus relief package going to hurt minority Americans harder? Unfortunately, the history in America, and which is playing out again, is that um, non-white workers tend to be 
the first ones to fall into a recession and the last ones to climb out. And we're seeing it now. I mean, the prevalence of black unemployment is much stickier than the prevalence of white unemployment as we begin to recover from the recession. And so um, the ranks of the unemployed are becoming less white just at the time that um, Congress has allowed to lapse the uh, supplemental supports for the unemployed that uh, were included in its big economic rescue package back in March. You have a bunch of workers who are really put in a really difficult situation of they either have to work a lot in jobs that are, in many cases, not safe and at higher risk of contracting the virus, or if they can't work, they're losing out on a large amount of income, and that's a, a big you know damage to their personal finances. And on top of all of that, they started this uh, recession with dramatically less wealth than typical white workers do. You know, you add all that up and it's sort of like a snowballing health and economic crisis that happens to be concentrated in the group of workers whose progress is most important to rebuilding the middle class. Have you kept in touch with any of the people in your book? One man, Ed Green, who is black and lives and works in North Carolina, particularly stood out to me. He worked two or three jobs just to take care of his family. How was he doing? So Ed is this wonderful, wonderful person who I met in 2014 when he was um, a janitor at a baseball park in Winston-Salem and, and also laying tar on the highway in the mornings uh, for the state of North Carolina. And I wrote about him as sort of this example of an American uh, reality now, which is people have, are having to work more just to just to stay in the middle class. And I've kept up with him over the years. I've met his family. Um, and he told me last time I talked to him that he had been deemed essential, that he was still working despite having a bunch of underlying uh, health conditions, that his daughter, who uh, manages a pharmacy, is also uh, been de- declared essential, and so that they're out there every day, um, you know, putting themselves on the line, but they're also still working. And if you read the book, one of the wonderful things that comes across about Ed is that he loves his family so much that he is willing to just work all the time to, to keep them in a middle-class life. And I think that that is true in the crisis. You know, we, we see a lot of Americans who are still going to work in jobs that are very dangerous or difficult for them uh, and exposing themselves to the risk of the virus, both out of necessity, but also out of this, you know, love for their families and desire to give them and their children something better. You cite research in your book that found when discrimination against minorities and women was reduced, and those groups entered the workforce, the economy grew, and everyone across the board did better. So do you think there's any hope that that will happen again soon? I'm a cynical reporter who lives, you know, just outside of Washington, D.C., and is not tend, does not tend to have a lot of hopeful things to say about the political process. But I um, really have been taken uh, uh, with the shift in polling we've seen in the in the protests of the last couple of months. Um, there just is a real awakening among white Americans to the racial discrimination that black and other non-white Americans have, have known is there for a really long time. And that shift in polling gives me hope that there could be shifts in policy. In the book, I'm, I critique the president's economic record, but, but I also note that he you know, as as president signed a criminal justice reform bill that that did remove some of the impediments that black men uh, have had in the uh, in the criminal justice system uh, to, to to getting good jobs and getting ahead. There's just a lot of work left to be done for women, for black Americans, for immigrants, um, and um, and I am hopeful that this the latest round of protests is a permanent change in America's recognition of the inequalities of opportunity around us, and that. Um, Maybe there could be some some real chance for change. 
That was Jim Tankersley, economics and tax reporter for the New York Times, and author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold Story of America's Middle Class, which comes out tomorrow. But you can pre-order it on Amazon now. It was an eye-opening read, and I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olgan. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on GISTHealthcare.com. GIST Healthcare Daily is an independent production of GIST Healthcare. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.